Hello and welcome back to Freedom Machines with Freddie Dobbs. It's a Friday afternoon and I've just been to Little to pick myself up some American Pale Ale. And I wanted to run through really just a few things that I've been up to this week and a couple of interesting bits in the news because it's been a brilliant week this week. I've ridden my first ever BMW and I'll take you back to Tuesday morning, 8am, when Monica and I head off in the Fiat 500, an hour and a half directly west pretty much to Farnborough, which is where BMW Motorrad's UK headquarters is. So we head off at 8am, pick up a coffee from Starbucks, which is just downstairs, and arrive about five minutes early at BMW's headquarters. And as you'd expect, it's a really impressive development. About four or five fairly modern, predominantly glass-built buildings dotted around this development. And Monarch and I pull up to the security booth right at the entrance. And initially, the security guard can't find our details. So I say I'm here to pick up an R9T press bike. And he said, oh, I've, I've got no record of that. Who are you looking for? So I then scroll through my emails to find and I say, oh, I'm looking for Tony, the, the, the chief mechanic who's going to do the handover. And he said, oh, Tony's he's not in today. I said, oh, well, hopefully he's left a bike for me then. So after about five to ten minutes of this, we, we managed to agree that he'll send me round to one of the outbuildings on the left-hand side. So Monica and I jump back in the car, drive round to the front of one of these glass buildings, pull up, masks on, go inside, and I ask Monica to film. So Monica's filming away in the hope that we'll see some really nice classic bikes and also some classic cars. Because I had a look on Google and some of the, some of the pictures on Google... Oh, Looks like they've got some really special vehicles in there. So I was hoping for the best to get some really cool footage. So Monica's filming away. And as we walk in, right in front of us, I just see the left-hand side of what I think is the BMW M1 in red, which I think is BMW's first ever attempt at a supercar. And there it was, it really was. It was a red BMW M1. We just move over to the right-hand side, start to get a glimpse of this car. Monica filming and then bam, security guard right behind us said, oh, no filming here. So immediately we have to stop filming. We got a glimpse of it, but unfortunately we didn't get to, to shoot as much as I wanted. But we're escorted back then to the security booth. Go and sign for the keys for this R9T. And the security guard points us in the right direction of where the bike's parked up. And I kind of semi-expect to, to drive round. And we had to drive around past, past around about past a car park and pull into kind of this shed slash just area where just a covering, a shed slash a covering. Pull up there and I semi-expect to meet someone who'll run me through the bike, talk me through it, just give me a little overview about what does what and maybe even show me a little bit around the inside of BMW's motorbike division. But unfortunately, I didn't get any of that. So we drive around and there's a group of about eight bikes and it's not all BMWs it's a real range of bikes everything from 
a Ducati, I think there was a Multistrada, a Suzuki, I think it's a 1250 Tour or something like that, and one other bike, and just one sole BMW there, and that BMW was an R9T, and I had a look at my keys, and the keys said the number plate, the registration number, and then I walked around to the back of this R9T, just sitting there in the corner of this covering, and it was, it was my R9T just sitting there, not even the steering lock on, which is, yeah, I've never experienced that before. So checked it was the bike, turned it on, initial walk around just to see what it was, and then just rode off. I didn't speak to any mechanic or anyone in the, the tech or PR team or anything, just turned it on, rode off, waved to the, the security guard at the entrance, and that was that. And in the first day, Tuesday, Four days ago now, I, I must have done about 90 miles all around the countryside, on the motorways, a little bit of everything. And I had a look because I always like, the first thing I do when I get a bike or the night before, I go onto the website, I do a bit of reading about the bike and I also have a look at what used prices are like. Bear with me one second, I'll just have a, a sip of this pale ale. That's good. Okay, and I'll plug in my laptop just before I forget. Don't want this cutting out halfway. Okay, here we go. So, £13,200 for this exact model R9T that I've got. And that is, it's a lot of money. It is a lot of money. But now, after riding it for four days, this R9T, I get it. I really get it. Having ridden predominantly Triumphs and also a few Royal Enfields, this is the first BMW bike I've ever ridden and I've never even driven a BMW car, so I had no idea. But what I do know is that BMW motorbike owners, whether it's GSs or R9Ts, they absolutely rave about their bikes. And I completely get it. It's it's a completely different animal to what I was expecting. I was expecting it to be a real competitor for the T120, but the BMWs, they are so much more focused. The quality of the suspension, the beautiful steering, probably thanks a lot to that steering dampener. And I've never ridden a bike with a steering dampener before. But if all bikes with a steering dampener have steering and handling that feels like you're gliding, like the R9T does, and I want to retrofit a steering dampener to every single bike I've got because I, I don't know if I've ever ridden a bike that's so smooth to turn from left to right. It really is a joy to ride. But that extra aggression that you get from the R9T does come at a price. Slightly more weight on the wrists, significantly less comfortable seat for one and two people and in general in general it's it is a more aggressive bike whereas the t120 triumph get a pillion on the back comfy all day sit up upright riding position look around smell the flowers around you look at the scenery all day comfort soak everything in r9t on the modern classic end of the spectrum is an aggressive bike and it's very different. You, you really, you get to the bends on the R9T and it, it's the type of bike that makes you want to attack them. It's not sit up and relax. You're, you're there and you want to really attack the bends, but what, what a machine. 
I was out with Monica this morning and we did about a probably about an eight mile ride to a coffee shop in Charlton, South East London. Monica on the back, right over to the coffee shop and it's it's a great little coffee spot because you can park the bike right outside, right next to her, the table that you have your coffee at. And Monica and I just sat there in the morning having our coffee and looking at the bike and it is, it's growing on me and I'm a little worried about how much it's growing on me. I really do, I do get this in some, in some quarters obsession with BMW bikes and how a lot of BMW owners would never, would never deviate from BMW. I get it. They are incredibly impressive machines. Technologically, they're over-engineered, but also the looks of them. It is a stunning, stunning machine. And it got me looking on Autotrader, actually. I'm a big fan. I'm always on Autotrader and eBay looking at the, the values of bikes. And I think I found the deal of the week if you've got if you've got a sports bike for example or you've you've got uh, you know you've got a modern class you've got the likes of an interceptor and you're looking for an upgrade if you're going from an interceptor or you're looking for something a bit more classical a bit more dialed back from a sports bike and you're in the market for something the r9t could be the bike for you. And, and I'll put that into some context because I've had five messages this week from sports bike owners saying that I've had my sports bike a month or two or three months and now I'm thinking about getting a modern classic and the R9T is high on my list. If that's the case, then you cannot go wrong with the R9T because as modern classics go, this is the most aggressive that I've tried without question. So if you're coming from a sports bike, but a little bit worried that, for example, a Triumph Bonneville or a T100 or a Street Twin isn't quite aggressive or focused enough, then the R9T is the bike for you. You won't lose any element of that savage aggression that you get from a sports bike. These R9Ts are seriously, seriously focused. And if you're coming from a sports bike and you still want a savagely aggressive bike but you want the classic looks and a little bit less unpleasantness from the weight on your wrists that you get with the sports bike then go for the r9t you will not regret it and what i found on auto trader is the deal of the week in my book it's an r9t pure now this is the base model r9t but there's nothing wrong with that. It's got the same engine. It's got the same basic build. There's nothing wrong with that. In fact, I like the simplicity of the Pure model. £6,600. You can be an R9T owner for £6,600. If you're UK-based, get onto Autotrader, type in R9T Pure, and you'll see it there. There's no way this bike is going to be around for long. So if you're looking for a new bike for the summer, you're also just in time in April. You're just in time before the prices start really exploding for the summer because as soon as summer comes, as soon as you get to May, mid-May, those prices are going to go up a thousand pounds. It is that significant. So grab, grab probably the last good deal you can and go for the R9T. And I'll move on from there now. Because I really do love that R9T, but I have to move on. And I move on again to electrification. 
but not as I usually discuss, because what I'm about to discuss is something that's been around in the car world for a few years now, and that's retrofitting an electric motor. It's been around in the car world for a while, but not in the bike world. So I'm talking now about an electric conversion kit for two-wheeled vehicles. So there's a British company, London-based company, and they have created a motor that you can retrofit your Vespa or Lambretta with. And of course, this won't work for motorbikes because the engine is the essence of a motorbike, not just in terms of feel, but actually in, in terms of aesthetics. The engine makes up all of the character of the look of especially a naked bike and it just won't work retrofitting an electric motor to a petrol powered bike but but it will work with a vespa or lambretta because the engine's completely covered so what this london-based company have done they've created a motor that will fit in exactly the same spot as the current for example two-stroke motor and there'll be no aesthetic changes to your bike. You won't be able to tell that it's got an electric motor instead of a petrol, for example, two-stroke engine. And this is important because, for one, as we move towards electrification, this is probably going to happen anyway. For two, it means that you can keep your pride and joy that you've got an emotional attachment to, and you may well have had for 10, 20, 30, 40 years, and you desperately don't want to get rid of it, and also, if you're riding in London, you don't want to have to pay the £12.50 a day that you have to pay to ride a pre-2008 two-wheeled vehicle into London. £12.50 a day. That's the reason I got rid of my 2002 Suzuki Bandit and replaced it with my Triumph Bonneville. That's a big reason because I don't want to have to pay £12.50 a day just to ride it into London. So... This is a real a genuine service this company's offering. And have a listen to this because I think it's I think it's really viable. So the e-conversion kit to convert your Vespa or Lambretta, it costs between 3,445 and 3,650 pounds. They will ship worldwide. And they will also offer full technical support, support and guidance on how to fit the engine or the motor yourself. And the length of time it takes, 16 hours to install it. But another great thing about it, it's fully reversible. So if you want to take it out and put back in your petrol, your two-stroke engine back in, you can just put it back in. And what a project. If you own a garage, you're lucky enough to own a garage with a bit of space, what a winter project to do, to take out the petrol engine of your Vespa and retrofit this electric motor. I think that's a brilliant little project and a way, a way to mean that you don't have to worry about what's, what's imminently coming with this electrification, with the bans that we're getting, the constant restrictions that we're getting on on older electric diesel cars but electric bikes this negates that you don't have to worry about it you can keep your pride and joy that you may have made so many memories with and you can electrify it and you can electrify it yourself so what does that three and a half k get you it gets you a range of 35 miles maybe i would have hoped for 50 to 60 but 
in reality, probably most Vespa riders that they'll commute to work for, for 10 miles or so and commute back. And of course, you can charge it when you get to work as well. So actually, it's fine, probably commute in for 30 miles, charge it when you get to the office and commute back. So it does make sense and it does work because in reality, most journeys won't be any longer than that. And to put that into context, a brand new e-Vespa is 6K, 6,000 pounds with a 100 kilometer range. So about a 60 mile range, just to put it into some context. But that's an interesting concept and something that I think is genuinely useful for a lot of people, being able to retrofit an electric motor. I like that. And I move on to high mileage bikes. Now, this is an issue that, uh, to my friends especially, I talk about all the time because I'm a huge fan of grabbing a bargain, whether it's for a motorbike or a car, grabbing a high mileage bargain because people get so scared off with high mileage vehicles, but there's no need to be at all. And I'm going to give you a few examples. And I'm actually going to start with my cars because... Here's a bit of my car history, my most recent four cars. My current car is a 2009 Fiat 500, 1.2 litre petrol engine with 168,000 miles. It drove with a trailer and Bonneville attached 5,000 miles around Europe back in November and the engine has never even missed a beat. It's perfect. The car before that I had was, God, it was a while ago now. Oh, the car I had before that was the smart car. And I'll tell you about that in a second. But before the smart car, I had a Honda Accord with, funnily enough, 166,000 miles, very similar to the Fiat's. And I drove that Honda Accord from London to Tenerife, where I spent seven months driving around the island. And that, that was completely fine. 166,000 miles, Tenerife and back, sold it for £100. Nothing wrong with it at all. And a brilliant, brilliant car. And I moved on from the Honda Accord to my dream car, Jaguar XK. Bought the Jaguar XK with about 158,000 miles and I did it, I drove it up to 165,000 miles. Completely coincidental that these are all so similar. 165,000 miles for the Jag. Ended up selling it, of course, for a loss, as I always do. But still, there's nothing wrong with the engine at all. I, I actually sold the Jag XK because my, my recruitment business at the time was doing badly and I had to save money. So I had to sell the Jag and that was my dream car. It was painful to sell it. And I decided to go for a 500 pound Toyota Yaris. So that's a pretty big borderline depressing drop in car quality. But Monica wasn't having any of it. She said, no, there's no way you're getting a 500 pound Yaris. So I reluctantly agreed to go for a 3,800 pound smart car. And I actually bought, I, we thought, okay, look, let's do this properly. Let's just get a small, fairly new, sensible, economical car. And let's buy it from a dealership because that's going to be the most the most reliable way to get a genuinely good car that we can trust. So I went to the dealership, the first ever time I've bought any vehicle from a dealership. Go to the dealership, £3,800 for Smart for two. 28,000 miles when we bought it and I thought, oh, this is good. It's just, it's stress-free driving. It's going to be so nice to own a fairly modern, low-mileage car that comes from 
that comes from a garage with three months warranty. This is amazing. And after nine months, the engine blew up, blew up. So I paid £3,800 for a car, engine blew up nine months later, uneconomical to repair according to the mechanic, and I sold it for parts for £800. And that, that is the only car I've ever bought from a dealer, and it's the only car I've ever bought in my life with less than 50,000 miles, and it's the only car that's engine blew up that I've owned. So it's not always the case that you buy a low mileage vehicle or a relatively new vehicle and you get a guaranteed quality. It doesn't always work like that. And the same's the case with bikes. I had a Suzuki Bandit with 66, uh, no, sorry, 68,000 miles. I later found out after owning it that it had been clocked. I thought it had 55,000 miles. I tried selling it on eBay and then I had about four people saying, you know, it's not 55,000 miles. It's actually 68,000 miles because they looked at the MOT history. So I had 68,000 miles, and although I, I have said it was the least reliable bike I've ever owned, its engine was fine. It just had a fuel line that kept folding back on itself and cutting out the, the fuel line to the, the engine. But actually, the engine itself was rock solid. 68,000 miles. Brilliant, brilliant bike. And this, it, was, it was fine, and I'm just not scared off by it at all because the the savings that you can make. You know, I've got a friend with a Honda CB600R, 1999 model, 60, I think he's got about 65,000 miles on it. It all seems to be ending in 65s or 60s, but that does have 65,000 miles on it. He beats most of us on brand new bikes. It's still so quick. It's just brilliantly, brilliantly made bikes. The, if you've heard of it, British Customs, they are a US-based modifier of triumphs and they've got their workhorse which is i think a triumph scrambler probably about 2012 model it's got over 60,000 miles and all they do is they just race through the desert on it it's got 60,000 miles nothing wrong with it at all bikes are better maintained than cars and there's no reason why bikes won't do 100 120,000 miles plus these are especially on the bigger engines when you get to about a a thousand cc they're pretty much as big an engine as a car yet they're way less stressed because you've got way less weight to carry around so grab a bargain and i thought i'd back this up to show you a few examples so i went on to auto trader just before this podcast and let me give you some examples and i'm going to give you the most extreme case here this is right now today on friday the 9th of april for sale a bike called a Pulse Adrenaline. Ever heard of it? Nope, because I haven't either. Pulse Adrenaline 125cc bike, Cat D, which means it's classified as a write-off, but it's been repaired. So a write-off 125cc bike from a manufacturer I've never heard of, going for £600 in running order, mileage 89,000 miles. So if a 125cc bike from a company I've never heard of can do 89,000 miles, and I promise you a BMW GS can do 130,000 miles plus, and a Harley can probably do half a million miles. And going on from BMWs, if you're looking for a BMW GS, but, but you don't know if you've got the money this year for this biking season to be able to afford one, well, I've got some good news for you. Because a BMW 1200 GS 2010 model with 
thousand miles on the clock. Four and a half thousand pounds. Four and a half thousand pounds to be able to have a 2010 model GS. And I've specifically put 2010 as the oldest model that I'm looking at because that's when bikes are modern enough, at least in the UK, where you can ride them in cities without restrictions. They, they tick the boxes for emission standards and things like that. So it's still a modern bike. 74,000 miles, 2010 model, four and a half thousand pounds for that GS. If you want the same year GS with 19,000 miles, the same year GS, seven and a seven thousand six hundred pounds that is a three thousand pound difference and not just to look at the bottom end of the spectrum i found honestly take my word for it a beautiful 2014 bmw gs with 65,000 miles for 5999 pounds an equivalent gs with lower mileage but same year £9,000, £3,000 difference. And listen to this. You probably remember about two podcasts ago, I had a question. And someone asked me, Freddie, what bike would you recommend for sub £5,000? And I thought, don't just say Triumph, which I usually say. And I said, there's a great looking Yamaha XSR 900 on Auto Trader right now for £4,600. 2016 model and it's still available it's got to be two to three weeks later it's still available the biking season's coming up and you can get a 2016 yamaha xsr 900 for 4640 pounds with 45,000 miles on the clock it's nothing 45,000 miles there's nothing wrong with that and you know how much you'd have to spend to get the same year XSR with lower mileage? £6,200. £6,200. You're saving a grand and a half. That's Surely that's another good buy there. And let me move on. The importance of a nice motorbike dealership. Because I'm in a WhatsApp group with a few of my friends. Most of us have Triumphs, but one of my friends has a Kawasaki. And he's in the process of selling it, but he just sent me over, he sent us over in a WhatsApp group, a pic of this Kawasaki dealership. And, and all of us in this WhatsApp group, we were all like, we were all thinking and we all said, that is the worst looking dealership I've ever seen in my life. It's just, I think, white tiled floors with a row of Kawasaki's on either side and a few generic pics of motorbikes motorbike posters on either side of the dealership no passion nothing that makes you want to go into that dealership and buy a motorbike devoid of any character you buy a motorbike because it's a passionate purchase you want to feel something when you buy it and this has absolutely nothing nothing there's no effort made at all to make your experience pleasurable or to make you feel like you're part of a community and i remember when I first passed my test 10 years ago, I actually went into a lot of the time the Triumph dealerships to get some inspiration. They weren't good, I'll be completely honest. There was no character in those Triumph dealerships 10 years ago at all. They've since improved things. But it's taken a while for them to improve things, even with Triumph. And no one, no one does that sense of community, that stunning 
dealership that you want to go into you want to be part of the community you want to be part of the environment no one does it like harley davidson every time you go into a harley davidson dealership and it's an event you walk in the ambience the way it feels the bikes the way they're laid out the clothes department the the decoration the fact that there's you know mention of the harley davidson owners club there's often a little coffee spot directly outside where every Saturday Harley Owners Club and the Owners Group they all meet up it's part of a community they get you involved in it you want to be part of it you know you want to meet up with the other Harley riders on a Saturday morning you want to be part of the club and you want to go in and spend your Saturday mornings looking at the latest model bikes and having a look at the latest gear they draw you in it's it's part of it's part of what biking is being part of the community and just the difference between at the very best, the top end of the scale, Harley Davidson and some of these other ones, Kawasaki, for example, there's no passion there to make you want to go and to make you really, really feel like you want to be part of this community. And I know a lot of the biking brands are catching on. I saw, for example, on I think Monday, Royal Enfield posted that they've just launched this global Royal Enfield Owners Club where past, present and future Royal Enfield owners can come together. They'll do national and international meets and it's just a place for you to get together whether it's online or physically and talk and chat about bikes and just just feel like you're part of something. It's so important. Just purely even from a marketing perspective you've got to create some form of community. So it'll be interesting to see if you know, if, if things if things improve with the likes of Kawasaki, one dealership I've never been into, and I don't know if they have them in the UK, is Indian Motorcycle. They usually share their dealership with a few other brands like Norton or something like that. So I don't know if, if they're going to start rolling them out in the UK, but I'd be curious for many American listeners, please do let me know what's the Indian Motorcycle experience like, because I've never seen one in my life. But at least in the UK, and I'm sure it's the same worldwide. No one does it like Harley Davidson. And I'll move on now, almost perfect timing, because I like to try and keep these podcasts to about 30 minutes or so, and I'm bang on 30 minutes. So I'll wrap it up with a couple of questions. R9T, BMW R9T or T120. If you want to ride with a pillion, what do you choose? And there's absolutely no doubt in my mind here. Completely clear cut. Triumph Bonneville T120, if you ride with a pillion often, you have to take the T120. The R9T is not a comfortable bike for a pillion. The T120 as well, it's a more comfortable bike for commuting and just sitting up. And it's a more comfortable bike for one person. It may not have the dynamism of the R9T for the corners, but that doesn't mean it's not fun on the corners. But it's definitely a more comfortable bike. And the second question, another R9T related one. Is the R9T a good commuter bike? Every bike that I've had, pretty much. So the the Triumph Scrambler 1200XC, the T120, the Street Twin, the Interceptor, the Indian Motorcycle Scout Bobber. Every one of those I've said, yes, is a really good commuter. Even the Scout Bobber, you may be surprised. I think it's a great commuter because the seat height is so low. It's really easy to maneuver around the place and very, very easy to ride. Great commuter bike in my book. The R9T is probably the first bike where I'd say, I can't say it's a great commuter bike because 
you have a bit more weight on your hands and it's just a little bit less easy to maneuver around the place. I'm not exactly sure why that is, but it just is. So I would say it's fine for a commuter. You know, you can easily commute on it with no issue at all. It's not quite as relaxing as some of the other bikes, but it's it's okay. It's a doable commuter bike, 100%. And that's a perfect place to stop. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast. Please do subscribe, follow me on Instagram, and I will see you next week. Have a brilliant weekend.